The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings. Welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Rose Kapolsinski, veteran political consultant uh, who we've known about for years. And she's right now, I always associate Rose with Barbara Boxer. Um, and you're doing a Boxer Pack and some other things. Rose, thank you very much for being with us today. Great to be here. I'm a big Hi. fan of the Capital Weekly and uh, happy to join the podcast this week. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, so I guess the overarching question is uh, politics and campaigning and doing elections during a pandemic. So how have you adjusted to that? And what are the special things, you know, you'd like to share with us what, that we should know about when it comes to doing something like this? Well, everything's changed for campaigns. Uh, in many ways, we're we're making it up as we go along uh, yeah. as as the pandemic changes, as the economic restrictions um, change, campaigning will change. Um, but two of the essential um, aspects to planning a successful campaign uh, have been completely disrupted uh, during the pandemic. And that the first is an understanding of your electorate and targeting your voters. And the second is the issue landscape and finding your persuasive message. Um, on the first, uh, we don't know who will vote um, in the pandemic. Voters are being mailed vote by mail ballots for the first time. Every voter in California will get a vote by mail ballot. Um, and that raises questions um, for targeting your audience. Typically you look uh, for those voters most likely to uh, uh, come your way with persuasion or get out the vote. Um, and with every voter having a ballot, uh, it, it uh, throws that into a whole new world. Um, do we need to target a much bigger universe because people will have the ballot sitting there. Um, what does the world look like in November? Are we shaking hands and do we have door-to-door -door canvassing? Um, and then the issue landscape, you know, every everyone in America is obsessed with the pandemic and what it means for their family and, and things they care about. Uh, and so, well, your your message in an election might have been a negative message against the incumbent. Now you need to think, how is this going to be received by someone who's worried about whether they're going to get rehired or whether their family's healthy? So uh, it's really um, thrown, thrown everything out. I know a number of campaigns that are just putting their previous polling on the shelf and completely redoing it. Um, do, you, so, do you mail? Um, do you use more mail to reach mail-in voters? Is there, you know, greater use of flyers? Are you contacting people more through the mailbox than you might have done 
at other times maybe using email, for example, but now actually using paper snail mail. I know they're supposed to be effective in a way, and I'm just and I'm wondering whether to get these mail voters, you use mail yourself more in a campaign than you might have used before, before the pandemic. Well, definitely right now, people are home and they are probably reading their mail um, much more than um, they did in the past. Um, what the world will look like in November is an open question, but I do think mail is more effective. Um, digital is also very effective because people are uh, online, doing a lot more shopping online. They're at home without the boss walking by, and so they might be online more uh, uh, for recreational purposes. Um, uh, and the biggest thing is the lack of face-to-face -face contact. I mean, we, we know that the most persuasive interaction between two humans is face-to-face -face, uh, in politics or otherwise. And, um, uh, and that's why door-to-door -door canvassing is so powerful for both uh, persuasion and for um, get out the vote. Um, and uh, that seems highly unlikely to be back up and running by uh, September, October when, you know, you want to have a full, full force field campaign going. Do you think um, that using the mail is a, for, uh, at the Secretary of State's end, at the, at the uh, mailing out ballots to voters, does that have any change in your turnout? I mean, the turnout you hope for in a conventional election, earlier elections, we've already gone, vote by mail is already popular, um, but is it going to be more of a crucial thing for you to understand uh, than it would be, say, before, before we had the pandemic or before we had such a, uh, you know, the use of popular use of mail-in ballots, that, that equation's changed too? It will be very interesting to look at the results in the congressional special election that happened this week um, and uh, uh, see who voted. Um, voter turnout was much higher than usual for a special election. Um, and one of the numbers I'm looking for is how many people voted by mail who had never voted by mail before? Because that'll oh, give huh. us an indication of whether um, people getting this ballot that they didn't request in any way, it just shows up, um, uh, are they um, going to use it? Also, are there any um, voters, um, uh, particularly younger voters who, who don't always turn out as well as older voters, um, uh, were, were there younger voters who took advantage of young, vote by mail? Um, maybe for the first time in years. Um, so um, uh, I think that'll give us some clues to how uh, vote by mail might uh, impact the election in November. Do you think voting early will have an effect as well? Now vote by mail plus on top of that, we have a window where we can vote before election day and return our ballots by mail. Does that have an impact on what you're doing? It will be interesting whether people feel comfortable voting early. Um, 
uh, even when we're not all working from home uh, in the future, um, it's likely that people will be concerned about their safety in group settings until there's a vaccine. And pretty sure there's no vaccine by the November election, although Donald Trump and Jared Kushner would tell you differently. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, so do people, are people going to be willing to go into an early voting polling place um, uh, this fall? Uh, I'm just not sure. Um, if there wasn't a pandemic, I think early voting is a great idea that um, gives people flexibility and options to vote near where they work and and um, not be confined to that that one election day. Um, you know, um, before we started chatting, you mentioned uh, you had some tips because you've worked out of your home for many years on various things, and. I thought maybe you might have a couple of tips for us, for those of us who have not worked out of our home much, although I'm getting used to it now, although I still, I, I don't really like it, but um, how can I make it an easier path working out of my house as opposed to going into the office and, you know, and working there? Is there something I should be doing other than bathing every three or four days, which seems to be my... <laughs> Uh, you know, my, <laughs> seems to be my hygiene protocol now. That's a little too much information, John. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. That's too much information. But uh, it's just kind of weird. I mean, days go on. Today is Friday. I know that because I checked the calendar today. But it just seems the days blur together somehow more than they, obviously, more than they ever used to. And the thing I remember when I have had stretches of working at home, the hours were irregular. I mean, you're answering emails at 10 o'clock at night. For heaven's sake, and or you know, or even early in the morning, you get up early, early in the morning, and you you're answering five thirty and six a.m. I get a lot of those, by the way. But what's a what's a good way to handle all this working from home, especially for political folk and journalists? Working from home is not uh, is not for everyone, but I love the flexibility it gives you, um, and I have a couple strategies to make it a little bit more. Uh, uh, efficient and um, uh, a little less like you're always working. Although I have to say, most political consultants, your clients expect you to answer that that email at 10 o'clock at night. So um, it's hard to completely turn off. Um, uh, when I'm working at home, uh, when I'm working from home, uh, I have a couple things um, that I do. Uh, to uh, create a boundary and a workspace. Number one, I have the same space every day. Um, uh, now I have a little desk in our extra bedroom. Um, uh, but even before I had that, um, I uh, set up my, my laptop in the same space on the dining room table every day. Um, I... Uh, uh, kept my papers there. And then at the end of the day, I packed up and put it back in my briefcase um, uh, so that there was some sense of that's the work space. It isn't all over the house. Um, second, I kept a schedule. Get up in the morning as if you're going to work. Um, 
clean up, try to get started at nine or 10, um, take a break for lunch, you know, and then wrap up at a, a reasonable hour. Even if you have to go back and do something in the evening, um, uh, have a schedule. Um, number three, put your shoes on. It makes you feel <laughs> like you are really dressed and ready to go. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm in jeans and a t-shirt, but I do have my shoes on. Uh, and somehow that just made it, makes it feel like I'm, I'm, uh, on my way to the workplace rather than, uh, hanging out in my, my sweats and, uh, socks. Oh God, sweats. Ready yes. to read a novel. <laughs> Do you have any um uh, when you when you sort of get dressed for the work day, do you dress like you would in uh you know if you went into a, a conventional office, or you're more casual? You mentioned jeans and t-shirts, so as long as you're dressed wearing shoes, uh like a Hawaiian shirt and you know cargo pants or something, it's okay. That that sort of sets you the sets definitely. The no dress code when you're working from home. Um, but I do think it, when you're, when you're hanging out on a Saturday, doing things around the house and doing errands, that's just a different mindset than when you're working. And I find if you, you know, have a schedule, get dressed, put your shoes on, go to your little workspace, you can stay focused and, um, get your work done rather than it's so easy to walk around the house and say, Oh, that book, I never finished that book. Maybe I should open it up again. I love to garden. And so, Oh, maybe I should go look in the garden for a few minutes. And an hour later, you're like, Whoa, where did that time go? Well, and conversely, you know, you mentioned keeping a schedule and I've found that working at home, you can easily find yourself doing doing something at 10 o'clock at night that you normally would be doing at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You realize, oh, I'm, I'm still answering these emails or working on this work project because, you know, oh, well, I can just get this done before tomorrow. And then you burn three hours at late at night when you should be relaxing. So it goes both ways. Uh, one thing that really helped me was um, I ordered Hawaiian shirts. I used to wear Hawaiian shirts constantly. And in California, anyway, the Associated Press, when I was, I was there for many years, and at the AP, there was very little uh, office attire that was required. That wasn't true if you're at the AP in New York or D.C. or something, but Sacramento, no holds barred. And so just the other day, I ordered some Hawaiian shirts, and I started wearing a Hawaiian shirt at home, and it, it made things great. It was just really a nice change from... And I got rid of the sweats, by the way. Sweats were absolutely a drag. Sweats were no way to go with sweats. But the shirt, Hawaiian shirt and jeans, really, uh, it kind of helped me a lot for what it's worth. And it seemed to be more fun working from home dressed that way than, you know, say in sweats and something else. For Totally a personal issue with me, but it, w it was more fun than it would have been otherwise, I think. I don't know. Do you wear a T-shirt with a I barber think... boxer on it when you're at home? or? <laughs> Uh, no. <laughs> no. Okay. It's actually advertising a land trust. I got it for free at some event <laughs> I went to. <laughs> well, another thing for about working for, from home, um, 
is sometimes you just have to push back on those people who want something at 10 o'clock at night and say, wow, is this a crisis or could I handle this in the morning? Then uh, that makes them define it as a real crisis. <laughs> if it is, of course, you want to help your client. But usually it's not really a crisis. <laughs> what about when you get an outfit like um, you're president of the American Association of Political Consultants and you mentioned that you volunteered for that, so it sounds like you were out of the room when someone said, hey, let's get Barbara Boxer to do this. He's not here, you know. Um, <laughs> so how do you, do you do Zoom? Are you on Zoom a lot now or FaceTime or something? I mean, do you have to get a hold of a bunch of folks at once and have, a, you know, 15 people on the line at one time to do things? Or is this not as involved as I kind of envision it? Uh, no, it's really disrupted uh, things for organizations and um uh, our organization of political consultants, uh, our main activity is holding events with workshops and networking opportunities and uh, awards for great ads and mail pieces. And we had to cancel our national convention in March um, because wow. of the virus. And so, and we've canceled all of our events for this year. Um, uh, and so we are doing more webinars. Our 30-person board meets by Zoom. Our 10-person executive committee uh, has Zoom and conference calls. Uh, last night we had a Zoom happy hour um, <laughs> with the, that people signed up for uh, to uh Network this is where everybody drinks ideas. by themselves, but we're all watching each other. How does that yes. work? Yes. <laughs> Let's Actually, see. There, was, uh, <laughs> there were a couple IPAs, some red wine, something sparkly <laughs> and fruity. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's really upended things um, uh, for people who do a lot of conferences. How is Capital Weekly doing, by the way, on all of your great conferences? Well, we... Jim, that's uh, your bailiwick. <laughs> yeah, we uh, just announced that we are not going to be pursuing the electrical deregulation conference we had planned to do May 6th. There was a question about whether or not we would reschedule that. But the reality is I feel like the the terrain has changed so much and they've now made some decisions. And frankly, I don't know that anyone is really thinking about that top of mind at the moment as they would have been had we not had uh, COVID-19, you know, come along. So that entire event just got, you know, washed away and maybe we'll revisit that topic at another time if it comes back. We're still planning on moving forward with our healthcare event, which is in September, and obviously with our election postmortem, which is two days after the election in November. But uh, time will tell what those will look like, whether or not we'll try to hold in-person events with a lot of social distancing. Luckily, we have these events in pretty big venues, so that if we needed to keep everyone six, seven feet apart, we could actually do that. But I don't know that that will be the advised way to handle something like that as we get closer. So we don't we'll, – we'll do the events, but whether or not they'll be virtual or in-person or some sort of a combination of the two, I just don't know. Rose, do you think there would be a, a – would there be a, a decent turnout, you think, at a conference if we did it that way, if we did it you know, virtually by Zoom or some other device? Uh, 
is there enough interest, at least among the political junkies, which who we, we try to interest in our events, especially and policy folk, but there's a political subtext in our conferences. Do you think there'd be interest interest in, in political people in tuning into our conference online? One thing that hasn't changed is that uh, elections are very important for the shape of public policy and uh, people want to uh, discuss them and chew on the results and uh, hear from different perspectives. So I think uh, your post postmortem, whether it's virtual or in person, um, is going to have a lot of appeal um, uh, for for consultants and others. Uh, I wonder if uh, more virtual events um, will go on, um, not only because people are comfortable, but because they're so easy. I've had several people tell me that some of the virtual events that our association's been doing, they wouldn't have gone to before because they'd have to fly there or drive across town and find parking and, and yeah. uh, you know, whatever. And so you could find a bigger audience um, for a virtual event. Um, I think we're all going to be figuring this out over this year. Um, our association did an awards event that we usually do at our national conference. Um, and we had over 600 people uh, oh, log wow. on to watch the awards, which... Wow. How many did you say? 600. Wow, that um, is a lot. Man, that's incredible. Is that for the uh, Political Consultants Association or was that for... Yeah, the Polly's yeah the Polly's Awards um, for political consultants, um, and our webinars um, are getting uh, two or three times the audience right now than they usually do. Um, so partly people are home, um, uh, but uh, it's also very easy to participate rather than um, actually going to a conference. So. I know you had, um, I think there were regional conferences. You'd have a national conference. Uh, I mean, the political consultants would have a national conference. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever, go I've never gone to one of those, but I have gone to the regional ones. I recall a couple in Sacramento uh, that were really good. Right. I really enjoyed them. And the regional ones might be even more suited to the online than, say, a national one where you have just, I mean, it's just vast, the number of people that yeah. may sign up. Is that... So you find that out to the so you're able to do like the regional ones or at least a version of them online. Yeah, we're we're uh, working on how to do a regional conference and still make it interesting, you know, yeah. so that you're not so, you know, can we add in, you know, um, uh here are some of the ads that ran in the primary that you might not have seen or um, here, you know, some more visual stuff that we don't always do at our conferences because the, the people talking are the, are the attraction. Um, mm -hmm, sure. But uh, we're just not sure if we can do, you know, six hours of people talking. <laughs> yeah. Like our um, conferences, right? 
<laughs> well, <laughs> well it, it works if you're in person, you know. Yeah. But could we do six hours talking and keep people logged on, you know? Um, Have you run across any problem with security? I think cybersecurity will become a much bigger issue this year as so many events move online, including fundraising events, which campaigns don't always want open to the press and their opponents uh, because it's a more relaxed atmosphere and you have your most devoted and passionate supporters asking questions. Um, uh, So I I think there will be extra efforts, particularly from the presidential campaigns to keep those secure. Um, you're, you mentioned, too, you're doing Georgette Gomez down in, uh, for Congress down in San Diego. Um, has this, uh, has the pandemic affected that, the way you're working in that campaign as well, and kinds of things you can do and maybe have can't do because of uh, you're more virtually, you're more online than you would be otherwise? Yeah, the ba- the pandemic was a shock to the system, uh, in in Georgette's campaign, um, uh, she has always had um, a strong grassroots um, effort, uh, big field campaign. Um, uh, she is used to walking every day herself, uh, going door to door, and um, uh, this congressional district includes um, a lot of people who do not live in her city council district. So a lot of new people to get to know. Um, And um, uh, for now, at least, uh, none of that is happening. Um, uh, But we're trying to adjust with uh, virtual house parties um, (laughs) and uh, uh, a lot more emphasis on phones, actually, because people are home and they're answering the phone. Um, and so, uh, for example, we've been in the campaign, we've been calling um, uh, uh, first seniors and now all voters to say, do you need assistance? Do you need to know how to access SBA loans? Have you gotten your stimulus payment? More a constituent service, uh, even for people outside of her council district. Um, And then the other big change with the pandemic for um, Georgette is she's president of the city council. And um, obviously, every city has been um, working hard to respond to it, keep people safe, and deal with the budget hit that is coming from uh, the loss of sales tax. When you rely on the phones, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, it's hard sometimes to get, get a hold of people on phones. I'm thinking of polling mainly. Uh, people just, they don't want to get on the phone and go through a Q&A with a pollster. Some do, but a lot don't. So if you're relying more on phones, is there are there ways of getting around maybe a disinterest on the part of the person you're phoning and able to engage them in a conversation a bit? Is that, is there some trick to that or is, do you have to call back and back and back again in order to get a message through to a voter? Actually, we're finding right now that people are picking up the phone at much higher rates than we saw just a few months ago. Um, And I think it's because 
their home. They're not driving the kid to soccer practice. They're not commuting home. Um, and uh, I've talked to pollsters who are finding the same thing, that oh, wow. they are, their cost of polling is, has been reduced because it takes fewer calls to get somebody on the line. Um, but in, in Georgette's campaign, we're um, uh, starting where the voters are, which is always a good idea. Um, and so talking first about the pandemic and how it's affecting them and whether there's anything she can do to, to help and any ideas they have for policy ideas. So, um, I think that's key. Um, you wouldn't want to call up and start right in with climate change or, um, uh, uh, some other issue that isn't central to to the pandemic and and recession that everybody's dealing with hey rose you're still working with um barbara boxer and you're uh doing a a lot of your time with barbara boxer's pack what's uh barbara doing now and what is she up to and what's what's with the pack what's the pack for yes 20 years later i'm still on <laughs> team boxer <laughs> uh yeah, after uh, after the Trump election, uh, Barbara Boxer intended to retire. Uh, she lives out in the desert with her husband Stuart, and uh, after forty years in elected office, wow. Uh, wow. she certainly deserved retirement. Um, uh, yeah, you know, she started as a county supervisor, then a member of the House than a senator. Um, that actually was uh, one of the first stories I wrote at the AP. Uh, I was down in Los Angeles at the AP uh, election headquarters at the bureau down there, and I wrote about Barbara Boxer being elected to Congress. She had been a Marin County supervisor, I think, and she was elected to Congress. So I, right. I just sort of feel like I've known her forever, or at least covered her forever, and now it's weird to have her not there covering her in sort of a daily, weekly basis or something. It's just kind of, it's it's a change, I think, at the reporting well, as well. Yeah. It, to me, it seems ironic that she retired and uh, Feinstein is still there, even though, obviously, she was quite a bit younger than Feinstein. Yeah, it was the right time for, for uh, uh, Barbara to wrap up her elected uh, career. But with the Trump election, she called me up and said, I, I can't stop. I have to do something. And uh, we, we need to try to take back the House and the Senate as a, uh, uh, a check on this guy. And uh, so um, we have a, a small political action committee that um, both gives direct contributions to candidates um, and then does independent expenditure ads. Um, uh, we did some get out the vote digital advertising targeted into um, the 25th Congressional District um, to try to help Christy Smith. Um, uh, unfortunately, the I think the fundamentals of that special election were uh, so favorable to Republicans that it was just too hard to overcome. Um, 
I do think she has a really good chance in November when the electorate will be completely different. Um, uh, and then in the Senate, uh, we have an excellent chance of taking back the U.S. Senate um, this year. Uh, many vulnerable Republicans are up um, for election. Um, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Susan Collins in Maine, Tom Tillis in North Carolina, uh, Martha McSally in Arizona, um, uh, and there's now a dozen seats that we're, we're watching very closely and where we've given contributions to the Democrats. Um, some primaries were pushed off because of the virus, so we don't yeah. know uh-huh. who the Democratic candidate will be. Um, but even, even uh, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, who seemed safer than safe a year ago, um, are uh, just a few points ahead of their Democratic opponents, and uh, the Democrats are outraising them. Um, so, uh, with Trump's approval ratings plummeting um, in these um, states with Senate races, uh, we could see uh, Democrats take back the Senate um, and maybe with an extra seat to spare. Wow. So, no. we're working hard on all that. Were you involved in the, uh, well, I should say, I'm assuming you were involved. Uh, in the 2018 campaigns, for which was a wave election, is there anything that you saw there that you think will come into play, even though this is a presidential rather than a, a midterm? You know, from what what would be your lessons or your takeaways from 2018, which was uh, an, quite an anomaly, uh, you know, in as far as midterm elections go. Yeah, 2018 was very interesting, um, and we did uh, work uh, on the call. <clears throat> excuse me. 2018 was a really interesting election, and and we worked hard on the California House seats um, uh, that Democrats flipped, um, plus a couple others that we did not manage to flip, um, like Devin Nunes. Um, but, uh, there were two things there, um, that I think we could see again this year. Um, one was healthcare as an overwhelming issue. Um, uh, and all of these Republican senators have a voting record on healthcare. Um, every one of them wants uh, to uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act um, and put at risk things like uh, uh, protecting people with pre-existing conditions. Um, and in the in the wake of a pandemic or in the second wave of a pandemic, whichever happens to occur, um, healthcare is going to be front and center and very resonant with voters. Um, The second thing is people turned out in extraordinary numbers to send a message to Trump. Um, uh, And healthcare um, was the the issue that motivated that turnout, but Trump was the overarching issue. And his miserable handling of the pandemic response um, 
uh, is widely known and and widely uh, disliked by swing voters. So I think you could see those those same two things um, uh, very central to the election. The other thing that will be um, I think overwhelming in people's minds is the economy um, as we see how the reopening um, occurs, how successful that is, how quickly do people get back to work, um, and uh, uh, is the federal government seen as doing enough um, to help people. Every one of those senators will be held accountable for for what the government does or doesn't do. Great, Rose, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, really enjoyed it, as usual. And Always fun. Thanks again. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Hey, thanks, John. And this is John Howard saying, uh, and we'll see you next time around. Take care. <laughs>